0: Welcome to the B2B Thought Leadership Podcast, where we share insights on how you can become the go-to thought leader in your industry. I'm your host, founder of Digital Strategies at Latin Presarios. My name is Alejandro Zanoja, and today our guest is Carlos Hidalgo. In 2005, Carlos left a successful Korean software company and co-founded his first business. By 2014, the company had made several Inc. 5,000 awards We're landing brand name clients. Carlos had published his first book, which was an Amazon number one new release. And from all appearances, life was great, except for the fact that it wasn't. He was unhappy, unfulfilled, his marriage was in shambles and he was stuck. Carlos knew things needed to change and he meets many who like him know the same, but do not know where to begin. This is why he's doing what what he's doing now. Carlos, welcome to the show.
1: Alex, it's so glad to be here. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, we met each other a number of years ago in Houston. Glad we met, and I'm digging the beard. I'm a little jealous. Thank you.
0: Carlos, we're here supposedly to talk about B2B Thought Leadership Podcast, but I've read your book, and there's so many experiences there that I want to I go deeper into, and especially yeah. th- there's a line that Cause there's a part of the book that you wrote and there's a part of the book that your wife wrote. And, yes. and there's an event that's in both parts. And I, I want to talk about that. So three children under the age of six, baby Four on children. the way. Four. Four. Oh, right? oh yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. You're right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Th- yeah. Three children, baby on the way, you're let go. What yeah. was going to your through your mind in that moment? Did you have uh, a plan? Sure. Did, you, did you have like a, an emergency fund and you were ready for it? You were not ready? Like, tell us, tell us more about that.
1: Uh, no, sheer panic went through my mind, uh, went through my head. Yeah, we had, uh, my wife was seven months pregnant at the time with our fourth. Um, I, what's not in the book is we had actually sold the house that we were living in because wow. we had built another house closer to that job because I was commuting 45 minutes each way in Dallas traffic. Uh, and so it was a bombshell. It, it totally rocked every part of my world. And as I do write in the book, uh, shame just roared in my ear that I was a failure at that point, mm-hmm. that I couldn't provide for my family. I couldn't hack it in a, you know, an organization. Whatever those little voices say in your your head to... Give you every ounce of self doubt, uh, just roared in my ear, and I was panicked. I didn't know what I was going to do. We didn't have some big life savings to fall back on. You know, this was 19 years ago, so I was only 30 years old, and I started to do what I know to do. I just I started filling out applications. I remember going to the AT and T store to just be someone on the floor to sell cell phones. And the response I got from those types of jobs was, we're not hiring you because the next, thing, the next thing that comes along, you're out of here. And I couldn't fault them for that. And so ultimately, I just went to, back to my college roots and started to paint houses just to get cash in the door so we could cover the impending birth mm-hmm. of my son. And the fault that I, when I look back is I never communicated that fear or anxiety to my wife. Mm-hmm. And she was feeling the same exact thing. So she's looking at me trying to be stoic and never see you sweat, you know, all put together on the outside inside the turmoil is killing me. And she's saying, well, if he's so confident in what's going to happen next, which I wasn't, mm-hmm. then I guess I should be. So she responded by forcing down her own feelings and it just drew this you know, inevitable wedge between us because mm-hmm. neither one of us were communicating.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I wanted to ask about that because, as you know, it, we have a baby on the way and yeah. and I just thought about that, like, wow, what if, what if that happens, right? Like, hopefully not, like things are going great. Uh, but my wife, she's been doing contracts for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's, and we're thinking about, hey, should we, should you not look for anything in this at least for this next six to nine months. So you can focus on that. And, and then I thought like, wow, what if I lose some clients? Right. And then like anxiety started like to, to hit it. So, um, if l- looking back to that experience, right, like they say somebody needs to prepare for that. What would you say? Cause you could go that route of, Hey, I'm going to, I'm just going to look for anything or, um, I'm, I'm going to try to look for clients, maybe at, at, at a reduced rate. Like mm-hmm. wh- what do you think now that you've been through that experience, if you had to, let's say, write a book on how to prepare for being let go when you have a family to support and a baby on the way, what would you say that 30, 60 to 90 day plan would look like? Thinking about both perspectives, right? Like I would like to go into, if you could go into the Kind of like the internal and the feeling component of hey, you have to acknowledge it. It's scary, and and how to deal with that. And then on the other hand, okay, once you've gone through that, what would the plan look like in terms of action?
1: Yeah, well, I can speak to the. I'll speak to the logistical, and then I'll speak to more of the relational, emotional, and mental aspect. Uh, Logistical. The first thing I did, like I said, is I went back and said, I know how to paint. I painted all through college. It's a skill I acquired. I just started letting people know, Hey, I'm, I'm painting. Let me know. And within days, literally within 48 hours, I had three jobs lined up. So I was like, okay, great. Um, So I knew that I could apply a skill that I had to make money in the meantime and and, and go find a job at the same time. I'd come home from that job and then I was networking like crazy calling everybody I knew Mm -hmm. that I had built a relationship with at that point in my all of eight year career or seven year career and saying, Hey, I'm available this, this, this. And because I, I knew I had to, I had to do something right. I I couldn't, or, and I even explored with a buddy, like, do I start a business that we're going to do interiors? He was a heck of a craftsman. So do we do renovations and I'll do the painting and the business aspect and the marketing and the selling you do what you do best. And, and it fell apart, but I at least was open to those conversations. So that's more logistical, right? Is is we all have people in our network that we can go to and say, "This is where I'm at. If you hear of anything, please let me know." And I think we have to go in with an open hand and an opportunity, a very opportunistic mindset. Uh, because if you're in that situation where I was, I didn't have the opportunity to necessarily be choosy at the same time I wasn't willing to go into a toxic environment now if I look at the trajectory of all that happened I went down to down the block to the gentleman who bought our home who had bought it for his daughter and I said to him hey I I don't know how to tell you this but um, I just got laid off today and the house we were going to buy they wouldn't because obviously I had no job, we couldn't get our financing, right? We couldn't get the mortgage. Uh, and I said, you have every right to this house. We have signed this contract. And if that's what you choose to do, I will honor that. And he gave me a hug and said, how could I say, how could I say no to you? Um, everything happens for a reason. And I know there's a better house for us. And I did that wow. two block walk back home just in tears. Wow. It still moves me emotionally Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to know that he did that of just like, wow, that was just a huge gift to me and my family. So, you know, logistically, there's some things you have to do. But I also think if I could go back and talk to my 30 year old self, I would say, rethink what it means when we say as men and as dads and as husbands, we need to provide for our families. Mm-hmm. During that time, my family never missed a meal. During that time, we still had fun as a family. My kids were, were small at that point. My oldest was six, as you mentioned. Uh, during that time, uh, there, were, there were good things happening. But what I didn't provide during that time was vulnerability and authenticity mm-hmm. and presence. And when we think about how do we provide or how do we support our families, I think we fall into this trap where it's all monetary. And I know if you, if you read that chapter of my, uh, from my wife in the book, what she needed most and quite frankly deserved most for me in terms of provision was my availability, my emotional vulnerability, my emotional and mental authenticity, and my presence to share with her what I was feeling and to hear from her what she was feeling and not to say, Hey, thanks for sharing. Everything's going to be okay. I didn't know everything was going to be okay. It was a scary time in our lives, Mm -hmm. but to at least be bound in that together, that's provision as well. And I would say in most cases, it actually supersedes what we think we need to bring home to support our families. Cause like I said, we never went without during that time. And it was certainly scary and certainly uncertain.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Carlos. You bring up a great point, which is which is sharing and acknowledging your emotions and, and being vulnerable. And of course, I think sometimes the fear is that if you acknowledge it, you're gonna get stuck there, right? Mm, and, and there's yeah. so many examples of of how when you, believe, you have to have unreasonable expectations and belief for something to happen, right? Like there's there's a story about Christopher Columbus, how he pitched the, the, the trip and that he was going to find treasure and he had never been on a boat. It was yeah. just his pure belief. And there's so many stories about this, right? And of course, you, you also have to acknowledge the difficulty that you're going through. So how do you find that balance of in um, in Brené Brown, of course, you, you quote her in the book, and, and she's great on this. Which is how do you, how you how you are you vulnerable yet not um, let I guess this despair take hold of you? What's that balance of sharing that you're scared yet um, still taking charge of it and ownership and, and and going through it?
1: Yeah, you know that's a great question, and. What I find is, and my wife talks about this a lot, we can get addicted to our emotions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we can get addicted to our feelings. So I think it's in my practice, uh, what I have done is I recognize the feeling. So even today, right, we're, we're so far away from that, 19 years, almost, it's hard to believe that it's been almost 20 years Since that event occurred, and I only know it's going to be July 31st is the anniversary because I remember that because I got a day of health care before I had to go sign up for COBRA, even though I asked for more. So, um, but I think we can get addicted to our emotions. Mm -hmm. And as dysfunctional as we know that they may be, um, we, we stay stuck, to your point. What I have found even now, if I am feeling stressed, if I am feeling anxious, if I am feeling uncertain, um, where they grow and where they manifest and where they start to tell dark stories is when I keep them to myself. When I say to my wife, hey, I'm feeling very anxious about this, uh, whether it's something with the business or something with our kids, even though they're all grown and, and, and off to their new lies and we're empty nesters. You never stop being a dad, whatever it is. And I go, Hey, I'm feeling anxious or worried or stressed. The moment I expose that verbally, it's like all of the air goes out of that balloon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, whew, I can now, I just owned it. And it takes all that power of secrecy out of it. And I know that and now I have someone who knows me intimately to carry that with. And without fail, Alex, for me, it is I voice it and then that big, scary, dark thing that's causing that stress or causing that angst or whatever, it just becomes much more manageable. Mm -hmm. And many times I'll even say, I don't even, babe, I don't even need you to do anything. I just need to tell you this. And it's like so therapeutic. And if it happens the next day, I do the same thing. The other thing I do is really start to say, what is the worst that will happen? Mm-hmm. So you know this, and, and, and now your listeners, well, I'm talking to you from our RV, and we full-time RV. And for me to sell our home in Colorado to RV, it was a big step. And my wife just said, okay, let's play worst that can happen. We sell the house in Colorado. We move into an RV. Month and a half in, we absolutely hate it. The worst thing that happens is we sell the RV and we move back into a house.
0: Correct.
1: Right? Doesn't seem so bad. And I think sometimes we paint these pictures in our heads of all of these horrible, awful things that are going to occur But if we really stop and think about what is the worst thing that can happen to us, that worst thing really isn't that bad. It's survivable. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I look at twenty years ago to now, where I've come in my career and in my life. I don't think I'd be here if it wasn't for that event.
0: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, that totally shaped um, who you are now. And and you bring up a great point because um. I think it's Marcus Aurelius that says, if it's endurable, endure it. If not, you're not gonna have to, if not, if it's not endurable, you're not gonna have to endure it for long. So don't complain about it, just, just go through it. But um, I also wanna ask you about, which is extremely related to that ability to share a, your emotions. And there's also a great quote. I think it's from your wife that says, if flexibility is health, Carlos was sick. And I, I've also struggled with that line because I struggle with flexibility. I'm super OCD. I'm sure there's many people out there the same way. And I've tried to f- build flexibility in my life does you also hear these other quotes like progress depends on the unreasonable man, right? Like if you conform to, to what's out there, so and, and I know um, again, we'll go back to the golden mean, and that's that's the right answer, maybe the right answer for each moment. But how do you how do you find the time to understand what is flexibility at each moment, right? Because yeah. you have to build a business, you have to build escape velocity, right? So mm-hmm. what what is flexibility? I guess how would you describe flexibility throughout your life and how do you keep refining it in assessing that you are being flexible?
1: Yeah, um, you know, for me, I would say throughout my life, and Suzanne was right, I was, I was inflexible. Um, and what she meant by that is I was a control freak. I wanted to control every aspect of my business, of my life. I wanted to control the way other people interacted with me. Uh, to the point where it became almost, well, not almost, it became manipulation in many respects. And when you're starting to manipulate other people to do what you want them to do, that's not a relationship. It's actually, depending on the, the depth of the relationship, it, it's actually abuse. And I became so rigid where it was my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some things, one of the things, that I, I will not compromise on my values. I have a defined set of values. So if I have a client who's like, well, this is how it's going to be. And these are the things we have to do. And those intrude on my values. I have no problem telling that client it's no longer healthy for us to work together. I'm not saying you're right and I'm or or you're wrong and I'm right or vice versa. I'm just saying I can't betray the values that I've defined for myself and still stay in a good working relationship with you. So when it comes to business, we should all understand why are we in business in the first place? What is the purpose, what is the mission, and what is the vision for our business? Mm -hmm. Our purpose becomes our North Star. Now, how we get there may differ. We may change up service offerings. We may sunset some things. We may go after a different segment of the market. So in in doing that, we need to be flexible. If the pandemic taught us anything, it's we were never really in control in the first place. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so when we adopt the approach, and I love uh, Jeffrey Shaw. I, I took this term from him that he shared with me on my podcast is follow what's unfolding and we get so fixated on our plans and our goals that we miss things that are unfolding right in front of us and we miss opportunities that are presenting themselves because we're so zeroed in with blinders on and say nope that's not my plan our vision for a company should be we are going to move to this place it doesn't detail every step. And Simon Sinek said it. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have a dream, I don't have a plan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And so that to me is the difference. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. 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 So, in the same lines, I think um, all, all this that we've been talking about, that you talk about in the book, it's about really flowing right? Like being yeah. the, the, the famous, um, um, I think it doesn't, it's not his quote, I think it comes from a stoic philosopher, but uh, Bruce Lee that says, uh, uh, be like water, because water can crash and it can flow. Um, and you talked about making all of these transitions, right? Um, being flexible, um, being open. And I think a lot of people, connect with that, they maybe see your your TEDx, they read your book and they think, of course. But like I read your, I think there's a a part where you talk about how we fool ourselves of thinking that the sacrifices we're making are for our family, but they're really for us and our dreams, right? And I'm sure a lot of type A people are, are gonna connect with that. And I read it and I was like, hmm, that's absolutely true. Cause I was, I like, I had a photo of my mom in my cell phone And when I came to the US, all this uh, transformation from all college dropout to graduating on top of my class was, I need to help my mom. She's like, she only has me. Um, I have to do everything for her. I need to take Mm -hmm. her out of Venezuela. Now she's here. And so I I remind myself because of the book, because so I'm working out of time. Sometimes my mom wants to talk to me. I was like, hey, I don't have time. I have a meeting. It's like, was this all that I was saying that I was sacrificing for my mom, right? Like now she's here. And, and I don't even have time for her. So how would you say, what's a good method? What's a good way to make sure that when you have that aha moment and you realize, yes, the sacrifices are, are for me and that needs to change? Or yes, I'm sick because I'm not flexible. I need to be more flexible. Or I'm too stiff. I don't share my emotions. I need to do that a little bit more. You have the aha moment how do you make sure it's not just an aha moment and then you go back to your patterns? What would you say it's a good way to make sure, yes, you're going to regress, but that you keep going towards that new self that you want to be?
1: Yeah, I, I think once, you know, assuming that you've embraced that and you've known that about yourself and recognize, boy, there, there's some things I have to do different, mm-hmm. doing it in community, sharing it with one person, And I stand by, if you're married, it should be your spouse. And so sharing and saying, hey, I know I'm inflexible. I know I'm controlling. I know I'm whatever that is, fill in the blank. I know that I've taken more than I've given. Um, Some of of it may necessitate an apology. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I apologize. And I had to do that with my wife and my children. I've put me first instead of you all first. So I didn't, in that way, I did not provide as I should have. And then define and say, what is one small step I can take to continue the progress? The, the small step may just be admitting it and then talking to those in closest of community. The next piece may be like, I'm going to define some boundaries that keep work at work. And allow me to bring the best of myself to my relationships, my emotional, my physical, my spiritual health uh, and my mental health, whatever those are. But always just don't necessarily say, well, I've got to get here and look at this mountaintop experience. Because if you've ever climbed a mountain, you don't go from the trailhead to the peak in short order. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of back and forth. You don't even go straight up. There's switchbacks. And sometimes you go down in order to go up. And it's the same way in our lives. And what I had, I had a really good therapist who said to me, you didn't get in this spot overnight. This took you years to get to this level of dysfunction. What makes you think that in 90 days, you're going to undo those old habits. And he was, Absolutely right. And it took me a long time and it's always a journey. I've not arrived at anything. I want to be clear. I've learned a heck of a lot, but there's always things that I'm uncovering to say, ah, that's another area I can continue to move forward and take a small step. And once you start to do those small steps, what you find is all of those small steps lead to monumental change over time.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you also, you're a big advocate of a big change in, in a big aha moment, which is understanding that this hustle culture is not going to get you anywhere, right? Like we're, we're in this pursuit of happiness and, and you shouldn't be pursuing anything. You should be calmly walking and, and appreciating and happiness is inside you. And there's this great quote, again, I don't remember who it is, but it goes along the lines of, if you're not capable of inflicted harm or damaging to others, and you say you're peaceful, you're not peaceful. You're just weak. You're only peaceful when you have the capacity to to cause harm and damage other people, and you decide to not do so. And and in a way that makes me think that for you to for you to there's a, I think there's a difference between slowing down and being lazy. And yeah. and I believe that for you to be able to slow down, you have to go to the limit. Um, I think it's Frederick Dodson that talks about like different levels of energy. And he basically says that the way um, uh, somebody living in the streets dresses and the, the enlightened person, it's the same. It just, it's just a different side of the coin, right? Like he says, you go from brags to casual, to business, to business professional. And then it's the same way and you go the other route. It, but the difference is that the homeless person has dirty racks and the enlightened person has clean racks. So, in, in this same way, I think that I think that a lot of people could say they're still. And he talks about like beware of uh, I think it's young that said beware of an un, unearned wisdom. So I think that somebody would you say that somebody starting their career they should start slow from the beginning and 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 be as calm as possible, or do you think you have to go you have to go through that? through that type A controlling phase, but just don't go to the extreme, right? Like work, 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 work. You build your, maybe you're young, you don't have a family yet. You can focus on it, do everything you can. And then as time goes, you pull back a little bit in, and then yeah. find that balance.
1: Wow, there, there's there's so much there. So I'm gonna to try to tick them off a little bit. And clearly with the way you're, I'm presenting myself, I'm definitely past the business profession. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I did that. And what I found was it wasn't true to myself. And I don't think I've worn a suit now in a long time. And again, not that suits are wrong. I'll actually see a yes. guy and be like, man, that's a really nice suit. It's just not for me. So- but, but but I could think, and
0: sorry to interrupt you, like, I could think, like, I totally see it in you that you are there, right? And it, it comes up with that energy. And I know it's not that you're lazy. It's just like you, you, you're past yeah. all that. And, and you, and you. Believe you can create value here, but you've been through the other phase. I think there's a lot of young people now that they see, for example, they see you. Look at Carlos; he's successful, and he dresses like that. I'm just going to dress like that, and I'm not going to put up a suit, right? Like I think that would be like a wrong message. Like, hey, you just have to go through the phases; you have to earn your 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 thought well, leadership. Yeah. And
1: and let me be clear: I don't show up to a client site with a, a teaching and a ball cap, right? So so know your know your audience and know where you're at. I want to first touch on what you talked about, the, the power piece is, you know, if you have the power to inflict harm or whatever, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about, he said, blessed are the meek in in, Ma- in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And we've, we've misinterpreted that term meekness in a way where it's somebody who just kind of has their hand between their knees and hangs mm-hmm. their head and, uh, you know, yeah, I don't want to rock the boat. What, what that term was, was in reference to blessed are those who know their strength. And they actually use that term in equine talk. So if you've ever worked with horses, I grew up with horses, love riding horses. If you've ever sat on the back of a horse. You're on a one-ton animal or a a half-a-ton animal that has tremendous power. If you've ever been kicked by a horse, you Mm -hmm. know that power. Mm -hmm. I've been kicked Mm -hmm. many times. Mm -hmm. However, when you put a bit in the mouth of a horse, simply by moving the reins on a well-trained horse to one side of the neck or the other, the, the horse turns, the horse pivots with a little jab in its belly, a gentle jab, it'll move into a trot or a lope or a dead gallop. Still exerting tremendous power. And that's what Jesus was referring to when he said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek who have tremendous power, but reserve it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I'm, I'm reminded of, of Robert Hershevik on a, a Shark Tank episode who told a contestant, don't mistake my kindness for weakness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think whatever we do, we should do, given all of our strength and our might, and we should do it through the best of our ability, and that includes work. So I want to dispel the hustle myth. The hustle myth perpetrated by guys like Grant Cardone and Kevin O'Leary and Damon John and Gary Vaynerchuk is, hey... Nine to five isn't enough. Nine to six isn't enough. Grant gets up there 95 hours a week. That is not sustainable. Eventually you will reach a point of burnout. And actually studies have shown more than 50 hours a week, you actually start to work dumber, not smarter. But to be clear, when I'm working and I have boundaries around my work, times I will not work and times I do work. When I'm in my work boundary, make no mistake, I'm exerting every level of effort that I have in my work. And if you want to say in that time frame, in that boundary, I'm hustling, I'm okay with that. I'm delivering for my clients. I am selling. I am writing. I am putting thought into what I do. And it's almost like I am in a zone, in a flow state. And so I don't care if you are 23 right out of college in your first job, or if you're 49 years old and you own your own agency or own consultancy and coaching business. I would say to you, when you're working, give it everything you got 100%. But when you're done working, turn it off and walk away. Why? Because when you come back the next day to your work, you'll be refreshed, mentally energized, and you'll be able to give it the same level of effort that you did on Monday. And you can do that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. If all we do is work, if all we're doing is hustling, if athletes can't go day after day after day, three-hour practices, plus games, plus workouts, plus... If an athlete needs rest, physically needs rest, what makes us think that we're so much better than anybody else that mentally... We can go for hours upon hours upon hours. There is science that actually disproves that. And so these guys who perpetuate that theory Mm -hmm. and that toxic culture actually are saying, hey, we know more than science. It's absurd and it's toxic and it's killing the way we view work. And actually, as I say in the book, it's just the definition of being un-American.
0: I mean I couldn't agree more um and, and of course I think people respect it when all these other great biographies about people and Einstein and all these geniuses talk about how they created so much time to do nothing because that's when the ideas come right like walk right. outside and do all these things and and um I have a my checklist daily is uh almost none is related to work it's like meditate, Um, exercise, uh, breathing exercises, there's all this, uh, fasting, uh, cold showers, there's all these things that I have to do to be at my best, and it takes a lot of time of the day, and it could feel like, like many years ago, I could think like, oh, I'm not working, I'm not hustling that much, and so what would you say to people, um, what would you say, how do you find that balance, because if we go back to, I think you bring up a great point about the athletes, right, like you have to rest, and the rest is where the magic happens, but you also have to break the muscle fiber because if you work out, yeah. there's people that go to the gym for years, they don't work hard enough and they never create any change. You see mm-hmm. them, they always have to the change. They never build muscle because right. they never break the muscle fiber. You have to go to the failure point. And, and I think with time, you learn to not go to the extreme. Like I haven't been working out recently. I was doing some kettlebell swings. I used to be able to do 100 in a row. Now I was... You know what? I'm gonna do three sets of 10 because I know I'm gonna feel it tomorrow. I'm gonna to do 10 and I know it's gonna feel like nothing because I can do more, but tomorrow I'm gonna to feel it because it's been a while. And sure enough, the next day I did 10 and it was like, okay, sore, not sore that you can that you don't want to walk and, and everything right. hurts. And I was like, oh, finally, after 30 something years of working out, I I I'm a little bit more balanced, right? Now let's let's take that to the work arena how how do you know that you're still okay i'm looking for stillness i don't buy into this hustle mentality but i still want to break some muscle fibers because i want because i want to keep growing is it is it sprints is it during the time that you do it you go super hard like how do you know you're still breaking your professional muscle fibers but not causing
1: injury yeah, that's a great question. So there's actually a science, and, and we have this in all of us. It's called ultradian rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even know these existed until I think three years ago. Um, but basically, to break it down, and I, just to be clear, I'm not a scientist. There's people far smarter than me that understand this stuff better. But mentally, we only have the ability to go hard 90 to 120 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then we reach a law of diminishing returns. doesn't mean we can't go further, but it means that we start to, as I said, work dumber, not harder. We make mistakes. We aren't as efficient. We aren't as effective. Our thinking isn't as clear. What our brains need at that point is to be able to step away and rejuvenate and flush out the mental debris that we've acquired over those two hours. And when I say a break, I'm not talking about a two-hour lunch break. I'm talking about a 15 to 20-minute decompress to go get a drink of water, to pour yourself another cup of coffee, to just go for a walk, to just sit outside. Now, here's the problem. A lot of people do that, and they grab their phone, and they're mm-hmm. on their Facebook, and, and so their brain is still mentally stimulated. We are addicted to busyness to constant stimulation, we don't give ourselves the ability to just sit. We are purposely surrounding ourselves with noise so that we don't have to perhaps be bored or think about things that we don't want to. And so if you're questioning, am I pushing the the fiber, am I pushing the health If you're working 70, 65, 70, 75 hours plus a day, God forbid the 95 that Grant talks about, you've not only broken the fiber, you're stretching and and doing damage to your mental and emotional ligaments and tendons and everything else, right? When you see guys at the gym who are lifting far more than they are capable and they're throwing their backs back to get that curl up, you're sitting there going, all right, yeah, you, you, you may build your bicep a little bit, but you're going to be thrown out your back, and it's not going to take much to do that. And so I can't determine for somebody else what maximum effort is. But if you're working in that 90 to 120 minutes, and then you're stopping and picking up your phone and looking through Facebook or getting on a game, or all of a sudden you're like, hmm, I wonder what the score was last night. And believe me, I'm as ADD as they come. But when you just say, hey, I'm going to go and for 90 minutes, it is a dead sprint. Not that you're working recklessly, but with purpose and methodically. And I know people who say, I start every day with the 10 same things. I don't, I'm not as rigid as writing it down, but I have a flow and a way that I start my day and it's the same way every day. Now, I don't start my day before 8 a.m. That's a boundary I have. I do not begin my day till 8 a.m. Some days it's 8.15. But I go hard from 8 to 9.30 or sometimes 10. And then I take that break. I get up most times, especially in the last, I would say, month where I'm at now. The weather's pretty nice. I go for a run. Now, the beauty of that is I'm tending to my physical self. And I don't run with headphones because I don't want that noise. Mm -hmm. I do my best thinking on my runs. Because I get to be alone with my thoughts for 45 minutes to an hour. I'm running out in nature, which is my church. And I love to be out there. And I love to be able to engage myself in that way. Mm -hmm. And then I come back. I fix myself a little shake. And then I'm back to work. And it is like... whole new day it's like i get i get another and i'm getting i've i've done this now for uh you know three years what i call working in sprints i get more done with better quality than i have at any point in my career and i'm having more fun doing it
0: you bring us so many great points carlos and i think with the pandemic and Just for reference, uh, there's a great book that talks about that, uh, When by Daniel Pink, that talks exactly what you were saying about the rhythms and and knowing yourself. And I think the challenge is that the peaks and the troughs happen at different times of the day for different people. Sure. So I think the pandemic has allowed everybody to go in their own rhythm. And I do the same. Sometimes in the middle of the day, I'm reading, I'm jogging. I'm doing exercise and meditating and and I just plan my day. But what would you say to either to managers or to people who are not as organized? Because you have to be organized and and manage your day and know your responsibilities. What would be a good way to integrating all of this and allowing people to, hey, instead of you have to be at your desk eight hours, I want to see you there. You have to be online on Teams. You have to be on call and respond messages right away because if not, I don't trust you're working, right? Like that's obviously toxic. What would be a good way to transition so that we allow people to do more of that? What would be a a good way for companies to rethink, hey, there's all the science. We've seen it. Even leaders, they might have experienced it. How do we build that trust that everybody's going to do it And build systems so that we know that we're getting people there, right? Like even the people who are not as productive, not as organized, how how do we get them to better manage their time so that everybody can be at their best by going according to their daily rhythms?
1: Yeah, I would say if you're a manager and you're saying you have to be on teams for eight hours a day so I can see that you're working, you're either a control freak or you hired the wrong people, which makes you a pretty bad manager. Yeah. So let's just call a spade a spade. Um, I, I think what you need to do is say, when, when, are, you, when are you at your best? What, what kind of cadence? Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be able, especially if you're managing, say, a team of 50, you're not going to be able to cater to anybody. But doing things by saying, hey, team, guess what? We're going to be monitoring your calendars. And if we see four back to back to back to back Zoom calls from noon to four with no break, we're gonna we're gonna come alongside you and help you develop the skills to manage your time better. So instead of doing four back to back to back, you're gonna do two back to back and you're gonna give yourself in your calendar 20 minutes. And you make it a mandate to say, look, there is no reason that anybody in this company should be sitting on a Zoom call for four hours. Mm-hmm across this. So we're going to actually customize our calendars and you can use a tool like Calendly to say, I'm going to put 15 minutes before 15 minutes after. When I do a coaching call, it's it's an hour. It's a lot. And I'm mentally invested. Mm -hmm. The last thing I want to do for myself and quite frankly, for my next client, jump right to another coaching call. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I build 15 minute buffers to say, all right, I'm done with that. Now I get to walk away, fill up my water, go sit outside, enjoy the sunshine. Sometimes I just stare out the window, but it allows me to mentally rejuvenate, to get ready for the next call. So as a manager, you can do that. If you're an individual and say, well, I'm unorganized and you know I don't manage my time well, that's a skill that can be developed. And, and you can do that. So when you say, I can't, or I'm just this way, it's just the way I am. What you're really saying is I don't want to try hard enough to improve to a level that I can give it my all when I'm there and when I'm working. And so the choice is really yours. Do you want to do these things? Do you want to achieve this level or not? If you don't, at least just have the integrity to say, yeah, I'm not really interested. I actually like being disorganized. That I, I can deal with that. At least I know where you stand. But well, just the way I am, or I suck at managing time. If you suck at managing time, get better at managing time. I used to be horrible at it. I'm actually now really, really good at it because I worked at it and I developed that skill set. And so skills can always be honed and developed, and we can do those things. It's really what do we want? And then if you're in a job where the manager is hounding you, micromanaging you, and, you know, saying you've got to be on Zoom, you've got to be present, you've got to be on Teams, you know, maybe it's time to find another job. I tell my clients, I have a 24-hour SLA on email, which I usually beat by a mile, but I'm not tied to my email. Uh, if you send me a text Chances are I'm going to respond, but the reality is it may not be till that night. If something's really urgent, pick up the phone and call me. And I have one client where I am on their system. I am on their instant messaging. Just because you instant message me doesn't mean you're going to get an instant response. Right. If urgent, call me. If it's urgent manager, call your people, but pull back and let your people do what they do best and stop micromanaging. Because if you feel like you have to micromanage, then as I said, you're either a control freak or you've hired the wrong people. Correct. Right. I think, yeah, I think
0: that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Control freak or you, you've made the wrong decision and you need to revisit that. Uh, we could go so many places from here, Carlos, but I want to go back to the past. And sure. And you've clearly, you've, you're going across that circle, right? And you've clearly built a great personal brand You've written a great book. You've spoken at, at conferences and, and done many things. And let's go back to 2005. You're painting houses. If if you have to think about checkpoints, right? Because I think I think sometimes we try to do too much. We're like, oh, I have to write a book and and do blogging and speaking. If you could lay out a plan for somebody who's at that point, let's say they're starting over or they're starting their career, and they wanna to get to where you are today, that you're coaching, you're advising, you have a book, you're invited to speak at different events. What would that ladder look like? Like if we didn't go, I know this is a big question, but if you could like, what are the, the, the five, the three to five steps of number one, be really good at at, uh, at a skill. And then how would that look like to then writing a book building a speaking component to your business then advising and then coaching
1: yeah um boy I, I i'm not a big fan of you know seven easy steps to success yeah yeah i'm not saying you're asking that because i think if it was that easy everybody would would do it um boy i, I would say, say
0: it, it, sequentially right like I think yeah. people try to yeah. do everything at the same time. Like if, yes. you, if you could say, let's think about it. We have all these pieces, right? And let's think about dominoes. Because you know how um, with leverage, yeah. I think, right? Like how would you put them so that you can knock this big one starting with this little one?
1: Yeah, I, I would say number one, define success on your terms. You know, so many times we are allowing the expectations of others, whether that be family, colleagues, bosses, determine what success looks like. You know, I I, I was coaching with somebody the other day when I asked that question. And she said, you know, I really just don't have this drive to move up the corporate ladder. There's so much I want to do. I I value travel and and this and, and that. And I just really love what I do. And I said, so why don't you just stay there? If that's what you really love. Now, in order to stay there and for you to stay there, what can you do to be better in that job there, right? What skills can you acquire and those types of things. And, and we have, and believe me, I used to subscribe is you're either moving up or you're moving out. Well, you know, who, who's to say that that's success. Mm-hmm. So I think number one, define success on your terms. Number two, if your goal is to say, I want to build a personal brand, I want to be known for things. So when I wrote The Un American Dream, I never intended to add coaching to what I do as a profession. It came as an outcome of the book of people calling me and saying, Hey, do you do coaching? Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't even start using the term life design until about December of last year when so many people started to say, hey, I love the way you've designed your life. And then again, Jeffrey Shaw said, you really are onto something with this life design thing. I think you ought to make a run with it. And I was like, oh, okay. So as a marketer, you do a fast pivot. So I think that idea of being aware of what's around you as well. Mm -hmm. And when you start to hear people say these types of things go, "Huh." maybe there's an opportunity there. As it relates to demand gen and marketing, I never grew up saying, I just want to be a B2B marketer. Now, I know people who, you know, that's, that's their dream. They want to be in corporate marketing. And that's awesome. I tell people I kind of fell into it on accident.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But once I was in it, I was bound and determined to be the best marketer I could be, whether I was client side or when I started to started my agency I co-founded my first agency in 2005. So I became an absolute student of the industry. I still read research reports like crazy. I want to know what's happening. I want to be up to speed on the trends. I call colleagues to ask what they're seeing. So I don't care if it's marketing. I don't care if it's coaching. I don't care if it's, you know, retail. I don't care if it is, uh, you know, Hosting, you know, being an outdoor guide. Become a student of what you are doing and know that there's never an end game. You're never going to be and you're never going to arrive. I talked to a client today who said he has a client where the CEO has kind of stopped learning. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's, Twain said there's two times a man dies. Once the actual death and the last time someone speaks their name. And I actually think there's a third one and it's when we stop learning. And so I would say if you, and I never had this trajectory, but I remember when I was at McAfee in the service management division, I did want to be published. So I went to the industry uh, publication of that time. And for those listeners who may be wondering what's a magazine, it's actually a paper thing that we flip through. Um <laughs> And I said, hey, I want to write for you. I don't know what your editorial calendar looks like, but can you send that to me? And we start. I built a relationship. It took me a year to finally get an article that I put together to get published wow. in their magazine. A year. Once that happened, I said, you guys need me, or not need me, I don't think I was that bold. I said, actually... I, want, I would love to come speak at your conference. And they had a global conference every year in Florida. And they said, well, call for speakers. And I think it was twice. I think it was the second time my speech got accepted. It was my first public speaking and I did debate and some things in college, but corporate wise, it was the first time I was ever gonna do any public speaking. And I really enjoyed it. And I thought I was pretty good at it. So I started to hone that craft And say, how much better can I get? And I do this still. And I've given hundreds, if not thousands of speeches. Every time I walk off the stage, I take stock. What really, what did I just crush today? And then what are some things I could have done better? Not in a negative way, but I start to understand that. But I think that the message is I put myself out there. And I said, this is what I want in my career. So if I'm going to be a marketer, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this well, and I'm going to put everything I have into this. Now that I am also doing coaching, I actually have a coach who's been there, done that, and is helping me build that side of my business, is giving me pointers. We did something together last week and I texted him after and said, I'm open to all of your feedback. And I want that, I crave that feedback from him. and when I finish a coaching call, I take stock. Did I get to that level of listening that I should have been at the entire time? What went well? What didn't go well? And I read things from Coactive Institute. And I, I took a mastermind class to help me. So I became, I'm now becoming a student of that. And I also embody what I'm doing. So I, I hope that answers your question. And there's no timetable. But where it ended was I wrote the book in 2019, that launched in June. Two months later, I got an invite to go do, give a TEDx in November of 2019. Never in my wildest dreams when I first spoke at that industry conference in 2002, did I think I'm gonna someday give a TEDx. Mm-hmm. It came out of nowhere and it was an awesome experience. Wouldn't trade it for the world, but it will take time and also understand you're not going to become a thought leader. You're not going to become, build your personal brand overnight.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That is, that is a one in 1 million shot. And usually it's when you do something really stupid. So, you know, be persistent and know that it will take time, but if that's what you want, you can make it happen.
0: Yeah. yeah. So many great points. We absolutely agree. So for us, we think that the foundation just takes a year. And Marcus oh. Sheridan talks a lot about it, how he has some like planning, just like the discovery, the research, understanding and building your, your content pillar foundations, that just takes a year. Then the algorithms kick up and then it, right and you, and you still need to get better and work with people. And we, we actually have a client that it's been a year and now to your point of don't plan it, just give value and then the opportunities will come. With the coaching, right, um, this client, we've been putting out content everywhere for a year, and now people are asking, people are demanding, hey, I want to work with what you're saying. I want to work with you. Is there a workshop? Is it? And he doesn't have anything. So now we're we're doing it the right way, which is like, okay, what do you want? And let's build it instead of, hey, let's just build some type of product and, and try to sell it to people. So I, yeah, I absolutely I, agree with that.
1: And one more thing I'll add to that. One of the other things I did, I called... Before anybody knew who I was in B2B marketing, I found and I went to, to, I really took time and said, Who are the voices in my industry that people are listening to? And I started to call them. And just, and I remember a call with Artith Albee. And if you, you know, your listeners might know Artith, she's great in terms of the whole content marketing and persona development world. And I called her, I said, Artith, you don't know me. Um, but here's who I am. Uh, I wanted to introduce myself. I love what you've done. I love your work. And it turned into like a 20 minute conversation. There was no ask of her, mm-hmm. except what is happening in the industry that you think I should be aware of. That was it. And so I think sometimes we don't get because we don't ask. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that could have happened with all of the, call, the calls I made to the leaders of industry at that time was them saying, yeah, I don't have time to talk to you or just not picking up the phone. And there were some that didn't pick up the phone, and that's fine. I'm okay with that. There was enough that did that helped me get to where I was. And I also gave a lot. I didn't start getting paid for speeches right away. There were times I had to pay my own way, but I would say, wow, this is an audience of 300 that I can go speak to for 45 minutes and advance my brand. I'm going to do it. And so when I wrote the book, the same type of thing, because it was a pivot, it wasn't about B2B marketing. So there were times I would go and travel. Now I'm at a place where I say, "Okay, you know, there's very few groups. I can think of two offhand. Where I go, okay, yes, I will do this so long as you cover my expenses. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I have the opportunity and I feel tremendously fortunate to be in an opportunity to get paid to speak, but it's not going to happen overnight. And so you have to come to grips with that as well.
0: Yeah. You bring up a great point about the informational interviews. And I think sometimes people are afraid. I think you have to have the right ask, right? It cannot be about asking for you, it could be a- asking something that's, um, I guess, easy for the other person to do, right? Like you cannot ask for something you haven't earned, like an introduction or a recommendation if, you, if yeah. you've just met the person. But if it's a small ask, I think uh, I think it's Benjamin Franklin that had that strategy of asking something small, like a book of their rivals, because then they would feel invested. And, and it's with small asks that you start uh, building that, that relationship.
1: Many great right. points,
0: Carlos, about how to get there. Now, let's go the other route. Is there anything that you absolutely wouldn't do? And I'll bring up an example. Of course, everything works in business and marketing. You just have to do it for long enough to understand it and test it and, and be successful. But I remember that when I was starting my business, people would say, "Oh, you got to subscribe to the uh, Chamber of Commerce, here, this, and there." And now, looking back, I'm like, "No, you shouldn't do that." Like. That's at a, at a later point when you've exhausted your network, You like there's stages to when it makes sense for a business to do that. Um, so I would say, hey, if you're starting a business, don't do Chamber of Commerce, do these other three things. Are there any steps that you could think that, hey, you should avoid that until later or you should not this, do this absolutely at all that you did and you learned that you shouldn't do
1: Yeah, I would say, don't make the the work the central part of your life. Don't make your business the central part of your life. You know, as entrepreneurs sometimes, and I fell into the trap and that's what the book is about, is making it everything. Um, I find that so many entrepreneurs actually make their business and what they do their identity. And work is noble and it's valuable, but it is a lousy place to try to find ourselves or our purpose. So that, that would be first and foremost. Um, I would say as well as don't surround yourself with people who are just going to tell you what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. Surround yourself with people who are going to lovingly encourage and at the same time, lovingly challenge and say, are you, you know, I'm not sure this is the direction you want to be going based on how well I know you and, and what I've seen and what you've told me. Um, so I, I see a lot of business owners say hey i'm gonna hire my friends or i'm gonna you know my 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 i'm gonna put together an advisory board of people who who know me and and reality is they're just yes men um and then I would also say to especially in the beginning and i i this has really come over the last number of uh discussions i've had and coaching interviews, I think we're all under this pressure of, I got to niche down. So if I'm going to start this company, it's the only thing I can do is this company. And I'm going to do this service and I'm going to niche in and I'm going to offer two things. And that is it. And niche, 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 niche. Um, I am better when I'm not niched down. Mm. So I do B2B marketing consulting everywhere from brand to uh, demand generation, to customer experience, to content marketing. I advise a lot of CMOs and vice presidents. I, I work on skill set development for their teams. I also write. I love to write. I, and I write everything from the book that I have. I still do a lot of writing on that topic around life design. My wife and I have a business that we talk, you know, our, our website, we do a podcast. So I'm a podcaster as well. I'm a coach. So I don't niche down because there's so many things that I enjoy, that I like to do, that I feel that I'm was made to do, that if I only said I'm going to consult on demand generation, it so limits me in my giftedness and the talent that I've been gifted with to impact those around me. And so I think you have to be aware to say, yes, my business is my business, but maybe it's gotten to a place and I have an interest in another area. So I'm going to start another business. Case in point for me, I just wrapped up a 18 month project of writing a screenplay. I've never written a screenplay in my life. I heard a story that a friend told me. I like to make people laugh. I happen to think I'm a pretty funny guy. So it's like, this story would make an awesome screenplay. So I took it and I ran with it. Just so happens I have a good friend of mine who's done film and my son is in film as an editor. So it was an opportunity for me to learn. It was an opportunity for me to create. It was an opportunity for me to do something. I don't know if it's ever gonna see the light of day but it was a worthwhile venture. If I had niched in, it would have just been an idea. And I would have missed that entire experience. So be open to the idea of branching out beyond. And that's completely counter to what's being taught today.
0: So I've been on both extremes of of what you're talking about. And I I think it's a a great point. So would you say, for example, that you should explore, but not let the world know that you're doing all these things like how do you handle for example let's say you're you're sharing content on linkedin with this new project is that something that you include that you talk about or you just do it on on your own and maybe share about it on facebook because that's a more personal like how do you make sure that to the eyes of your ideal client you're still known as what you can do to help them solve a problem while still exploring all of these areas do you explore on your own? Do you talk about it? How does yeah, that, how does I look sometimes
1: like? I think sometimes we get a little too carried away with what people are going to see and what people are going to think. The reality is, you know, I'm not I'm not Bill Gates. I don't have 12 million or 20 million followers or things like Sorry. that. So if you go to my LinkedIn profile, you're going to see like, okay, how many jobs does this guy have? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm advi- I sit on the board of a company. I'm advisor to another company. Uh, I have my coaching business on there. I have a, uh, you know, I'm a a chief strategy officer. I have my, my consulting business on there. I do a lot. And so the interesting thing is I have clients who will call me up and say, Hey, we've been following you for quite a while. Um, I I, I like what you wrote about in this topic. So consulting Mm, or coaching or life design. And so And again, maybe that's because I have been around for a while and people understand the industry that I grew up in, that I kind of made my career in for a while. And over the last number of years, there's been a bit of a pivot. Um, I don't know. But I think as long as your content is consistent and you can be seen. So for instance, I write on Medium. I post on Medium. I've written two or three political slanted blogs. Now, I'm not a politics expert I'm, I'm not a policy expert by any means it's just simply my view of what's going on i had a publication on medium say hey would you like to be a political writer for us yeah. kind of an interesting thing so i think i've posted two articles it's not like i'm going to put all of my time but if somebody went and looked at my medium profile they would see those stories and go well here's another thing this guy is doing so i, I think for me if if I'm trying to grow this business and make this business huge, yes, I'm going to have my key things. But if we have nothing outside that keeps us occupied, and if you share it, I think it's great to let people know Mm -hmm. you're well-rounded. You have other interests besides just putting your nose to the grindstone 24-7. I love seeing what other people are into because at the end of the day, business is about people. People. It's human. So if I know, for instance, that somebody loves baseball, that's an instant connection because I think baseball is one of the greatest games on the planet. Mm -hmm. So now I can sit there and talk baseball with them before we ever get to business. If I know people that enjoy the outdoors, I'm great with that. I love being outside. So that's a common connection that I can make with them. So I think we get so caught up on oh my word is this content that I'm going to put. Now, if you're going to put pictures of your puppies and, and things like that. That's probably not LinkedIn fodder. It's more for Facebook. So understand the medium and who you're connecting with. But I say, show who you are. People, we do business with people. I don't do business with accounts.
0: Yes. There's a, there's research. There's a book called range. And I think there, they share that scientists that have an artistic hobby painting music, something are something like 44% more likely to win a a Nobel Prize. And and Einstein has a book um, where he, which I think it's a great mental exercise, what you're saying about, hey, I'm writing about my views on this uh, politics issue, even though I'm not a politician and it's not what I do, I still can have an opinion and and, and work my way through it. I think it's Einstein that has a book where he shares his opinion on everything, on women's rights, on the economy. It's, it's just so interesting to, and of course, you can tell that he might not be an expert, but he makes an, an educated opinion on, on all of these topics, which I'm sure um, contributed to what he was able to do through his life. And Carlos, you, you mentioned that you have all these. Jobs on LinkedIn and all of the things that you do now. So nowadays, when people ask you, what do you do? What's your typical answer?
1: I say that I help people live the kind of life that they love to live every day. That's what I get to do. Um, and I'm, I feel extremely fortunate to be able to say that. I'm extremely grateful to be able to say that. But whether I'm consulting, with a client, on marketing. I want them to live their best life every day at work. Whether I'm coaching a client on life design and some big life decisions that they want to make, or my wife and I are talking to a couple uh, about the same thing, we want them to live their best lives that they love to live every day and create that life. And I think too many times we get caught up in the, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what so-and-so said success looks like. And if I'm going to be successful, I have to do these things. And the reality is we only have one life and it will come to an end at some point. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I don't want to be the guy who says, man, I didn't take every opportunity to live life to its fullest and live wholeheartedly. I spent too many years doing that and I'm not going to do it again. And so I get to help people design the life that they love to live every day. a pretty awesome gig
0: it sounds it sounds like an awesome gig and it reminds me um there's this great series that, that that we just started watching I think it's called the chosen or the chosen one it's about Jesus and he has a scene there with with Mary Magdalene the first time they they ever meet and and she was going through some things and and it was amazing to see him just Embracing her and basically taking all this, you could see the suffering going out of her. And in a way, um, I think that's what you're doing professionally. All of these type A people who can achieve so many great things that are that are suffering. They're suffering because of their stiffness and they're not flexible. They're suffering because they're they're chasing something that they're never gonna catch and they're just gonna get tired. And and of course, th- this applies to everybody. But if you could say who is that person? Because they say the, the student, the master only appears when their student is ready, right? So, who is that person that on the average you can help the most? Like, out of all your clients, is, is it a particular time in their life? Like, what, for somebody out there listening to this, who do you think is the, the ideal person that's ready to take that next step and, and stop hustling and, and suffering? And just slow down and start living life the way they would like to live it.
1: Yeah, I would say anybody who is listening who says has an inkling, doesn't even have to be this, this overwhelming voice, but an inkling that there's more to life than what I'm doing right now. There's more to life than the day-to-day in and out doldrum. There's more to life than the relationship that I have right now. Anybody who has that inkling, we should talk because I would agree. There's more to life. And so many times we wait for other things to happen to make us happy, to get us to that next stage. If you you reference Suzanne's chapter in the book, she talks about living on the promise of someday. hmm and my good friend, Milena Rigos said, Sunday is not a day in the week. And I love that that quote. And so many times we live on the promise of Sunday. Well, Sunday I'll get that raise. And then we get the raise and yeah, we're excited for like five minutes, but then life goes back to the doldrums. So if you have an inkling that there could be something more, then those are the type of people I love to help.
0: Perfect. Excellent way to put it. Carlos, there's so many other things I'd like to talk about. You mentioned uh, that up and out, it's not the only way. And there's great research about that. They talk about superstars and rock stars, and I think it's a radical candor. I think we could talk for hours, but I want to be uh. respectful of your time. Uh, I appreciate all, all that you've shared with us. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience? So we'll link to, we'll link to the book, we'll link to the TEDx talk, we'll link to your page and, and everything we've talked about. Uh, the the, uh, Daniel Pink book, but is there anything, any other ask that you'd like to make for the audience or any other resource or recommendation that you'd like to share?
1: The only ask I would make of your audience is list one or two small shifts you can make today to start living life to its fullest. Just one or two small shifts. So for instance, it may be living with a spirit of gratitude and, and I know I had somebody, a coaching client yesterday I said, I used to think that sounded so cheesy and I loved his candor. Mm-hmm. But even this morning I woke up, wasn't feeling like, yeah, ready to take on the day. And I, as in my normal practice, laid there for a few minutes, probably about five minutes. And I just thought of three things to be thankful for.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What can I be thankful for today? And it just, is a great way to start your day and oftentimes it'll just change the trajectory than if we get up grab our phones and so something simple like that just to find one or two things you can do small things to start that process of making life what you want because the choice is ours it's it's our life so we have that choice
0: thank you so much carlos Maybe we'll have to do a a round two. I also want to talk about man and crying and and many other things that that we could touch, but thank you so much for your time. Um, We'll see you on the next episode.
1: Thanks, my friend. Good to see you. Take care.
0: Thank you for subscribing to the B2B Thought Leadership Podcast. It's our goal to help you become the go-to thought leader in your niche. That's why we do these interviews and we create the content. So, If you want more of it, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and other podcast platforms and especially subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click that subscription button, click the notification bell so that whenever new content comes out, you are the first to know about it. Thanks again and see you in the next episode.